you're about to listen to Brittle Star's really great podcast. The really great podcast is fueled by our well-caffeinated friends at Club Coffee. It's a it's kind of a misnomer because there's no actual club to join. They just they make like they they make coffee. There's no club, so don't don't get your hopes up. They make delicious compostable coffee pods that you can find at retailers across Canada, like Loblaws, Amazon, and Costco. And they're Canadian too, eh? If you're not into coffee, sorry. Hi, Brittle Star here. You're listening to my really great podcast. Each episode, I sit down and have a chat with someone I think is pretty cool. I think you'll think they're pretty cool too. And today we're talking to... My name is Richard Krauss, cultural avatar, renaissance man, actually TV film critic is what I do. That's how I pay my bills. I like cultural avatar better. That's cool. <laughs> it sounds. I don't super... even really know what it means, but well, I like that's the, the best part. It. That's the, the best. The part is you don't even know what it means, but you're like, I'm impressed. I'm immediately impressed. <laughs> he may be a hologram. I'm really not sure. That's mm. the cool part. Uh, thanks so much for hanging out today. I really appreciate it. As you know, you and I have known each other for a number of years now, but um, I still have, uh, you know, like when you, well, you'll know this, when you meet someone that you've seen on television or movies or even online to these days, and then you meet them in real life, you feel like you kind of have, like you've known them for a very, very long time. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. I'm just rummaging through their garbage outside their house. Well, it's kind of like that. The other thing, sort of from my point of view, as someone who has been on television for a very long time, it's incredible how many people's names I don't know because people know <laughs> my name and they don't introduce themselves to me. So in a in some sort of work situation, uh, people will say, hey, Richard, and I'll be like, yes. And then they don't say, my name's Stuart, and I'd like to, I'd yeah. like you to help me with this, or can you do this for me, whatever. And so there's like a million people now that it's been so long that I've been interacting with them, but I, it is so that I can't now say, oh, what's your name? Because it would just be embarrassing for everybody involved. So I have this kind of situation now where I, I often will try and like, overhear conversations and hopefully someone <laughs> says, hey, Billy, go get Richard to do this. And then I'll go, okay, that's Billy. I will remember the name Billy. But so so often I don't know people's names and it's embarrassing. It's hard. Well, it's, I mean, it is, I feel terrible with names. I remember back when I was, I, I'm always scared to guess at people's names as well. And that's mm -hmm. the weird thing about having, like for me, having this modicum of, of recognizable faceness um, that uh, <laughs> people kind of know, they'll sort of see me and they, they don't know how they know me, but they they know me somehow. Right. And then I have no idea who they are. But then to make matters even worse, I have a terrible memory for names, or at least I have a terrible phobia for rem remembering names. When I was 11, my dad, uh, I went with him, my dad into this uh, business downtown. It was like a hotel type thing. And he was, uh, I don't know, making reservations at the restaurant or something, whatever he was doing there. And um, this whole conversation, I stood beside my dad and he referred to the owner as Ted. He's like, hey, Ted, good to see you, Ted. Ted, Thanks, Ted. Ted, you're the best. I love you, Ted. You're amazing, Ted. I look up to you, Ted. I'm so glad you and I are friends, Ted. And then we left, and I said to my dad, I think his name's Mike. <laughs> it was oh. like, and I was mortified. And then I confirmed afterwards, and I was like, oh, God. like that. I, got, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Who cares, really? Well, like, maybe Mike he likes the name in. Ted. Well, exactly. Yeah, he should have. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my wife, when we're at, I mean, in the before times, when we would be at large parties where there's a lot of people that I should know, uh, because I'm terrible with names and remembering, I'll remember contextually where I know you from, but right. I'm, I'm often not very good with names. And so my wife will do that, the Devil Wears Prada thing, and just sort of follow behind me going, that's Stuart Reynolds. He interviewed you for a <laughs> podcast two years ago. And that's it. And then, hello, Stuart. How are you? And so it's, oh, yeah. That's she knows, great. She knows the details. Yeah, no, my wife, Shannon's useless. She doesn't do any of that stuff. She doesn't do any of that. Oh, no, Andrea remembers everything, every face. It's, it's amazing. We'll be watching uh, movies, old TV shows. During the pandemic, we've watched uh, over 200 episodes of Law & Order. Like, pretty wow. much, well, the entire the entirety of the original season of Law & Order. I think there's 220 episodes, something like that. And, you know, when you're going back... 30 years, some of these are 30 years old, there are very famous people who weren't famous then in them, who might have been children sure. at the at the point at which they made Law & Order. And she'd be like, oh, that's a blah, 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 
you know, he, he was in a movie last year. I'm like, how can you pick that face yeah. out of and, and put a name to it? it? It's incredible. She just has like, she's like the Terminator. I, I imagine that she has that little computer readout in her eye that she can see. That's a skill. Like, doo, doo, doo. That's Billy. That's Stuart from the podcast. <laughs> I would, know? I would love to have that ability. And it's like, you see people, like you hear stories of like people like, uh, like Bill Clinton. Yeah. And of course, like John Mulaney does a whole bit about how Bill Clinton knows everyone's name. Um, but I even like I, I remember having dinner uh, with with uh, Dana Brunetti, which is an unlikely dinner partner for me. But we were having dinner, and he was telling the story about being in a room. And he's a this Dana Brunetti is, does he's the guy that did uh, House of Cards and uh, produced that right. and all that kind of stuff and Captain Phillips and stuff. And um, he's but he's also very right wing. He's like a very right wing American politics type guy, like super right wing. Wow. And. Uh, but he's, I mean, you know, apart from that obvious flaw, he's, he's a super nice guy. Uh, he, uh, so we're having dinner and he's telling the story about Bill Clinton. And he was saying like, as soon as this guy came into the room, he said, I'd met him once before three years ago. And I, he got like, you know, Dana Brunetti, you might know his name, but you don't necessarily know what he looks like. Like he's yeah. just a producer guy. Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, Bill Clinton walked in and walked around and said, hi, so-and-so to everyone's there. Hey, Bill, how are you doing? Uh, Brenda, good to see you. Dolores, uh, nice to meet you, Jim. Yeah. And Dana, good to see you again. And he always, he knew everything. It would be such a skill. I think you'd have to go into politics or something if you had that. Or bartending. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There used to yeah. be on Young Street, the oldest cocktail bar in the, on Young Street was called the Silver Rail. It was the first place in the 1940s to open that you could actually sit down and get a gimlet and things like that. Yeah. And it lasted through into the 90s, yes. and it was a fantastic place. Right near Massey Hall, so often you'd go for a drink before mm -hmm. a show at Massey Hall or whatever. And there was a guy named Jimmy who worked there for 30 years, more, maybe more. And Jimmy remembered everything. And uh, I took my father, who does not live or did not live in Ontario, I took him there twice, many years apart. Mm -hmm. So the first time we go in, my dad orders... A Labatt Blue, probably. We sat at the bar and he goes, a Labatt Blue. Sure. Four years later, we go back and Jimmy just comes up very casually, another Labatt Blue. <laughs> and it was just, <laughs> That's fabulous, isn't it? That's so great. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's such a skill to have. It's amazing. It's funny talking about the Silver Rail. My uh, friend of mine uh, is a chef and um, was interviewing for a job in Toronto and uh, was told to meet at the Silver Rail. And he's like, oh, this is really exciting. Uh, he unfortunately went to the Brass Rail, which is not. Oh, it's a different place. It's a very, very Much different, different place. place. Exactly. Much more scantily clad uh, uh, women in that uh, in the Brass Rail. Oh, the Silver Rail was an incredible place. Uh, the bar was old school, and downstairs was a really elegant dining room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'd have jazz playing, and like Robert Frank used to sing on Friday nights. And I was in there one night, and I looked at the back, and Pete Townsend was sitting back there because they were doing uh, Tommy down the oh, road right. at one of the theaters down the road. Yeah. And uh, Pete Townsend was having a meeting in the back there. And, you know, you never knew. It was, it was one of those great bars. Uh, because I always say the bars are like the last democratic place. You yeah. know, uh, you could be sitting next to um, Pete Townsend at the bar on one side, and you know, uh, someone who just had enough money to get a Labatt Blue on the other side of you, right. and everyone's talking. And you know, the Silver Rail was very definitely that place. One of the things I really enjoy when I talk to you is that you'll, in a very non-boasty way, there'll be lots of name drops. And I, <laughs> I have I have zero problem with name dropping. I mm. actually said to a, a friend this past weekend, um, they said, oh, I'm sorry for being name dropping. I was like, I don't care about your stories unless you name drop. I want you to tell them, like, name drop more, <laughs> drop more names. But I mean, because uh, whenever you and I talk, I'm always keen to get like, the, what's the dirt? What do you know about people? Like, mm. I mean, that's makes it exciting. I don't have any problem with name dropping. I mean, do you, do you get tired of it? I, I don't either. I, I think if you're going to uh, drop a name though, uh, it's got to be a, a name that means something. I used to work with this guy who would tell <laughs> incredible stories. Well, no, actually, no. They were they were not incredible stories. They were the opposite of incredible <laughs> stories. But it would be like uh, you know a, a, a long drawn out story about something and he'd say, and that man's name was uh, Guillaume Smith. <laughs> and then the wait, my God, you and, were friends with just, Paul Harvey. Wait for that wait for that like big moment of recognition on my face, and I'd be like, is it name dropping <laughs> if I've never heard of the person? And and 
and it was constant. It was a steady stream of them, and inevitably, and it would always build up, and that person's name was... You know, Jimmy Fields. <laughs> oh my God! Oh wait a minute! I don't have any idea who that, who that is. That is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. I mean, one of the things, of course, you've done in in, in your career because you've been doing this for a long time now, and and interviewing and chatting with stars and stuff. Mm. Um, are they like when you do these press junkets? And and by that I mean. I'm thinking I'm using the right term. Basically, when there's like a movie and there's a promotion and they send the, the whole bunch of reporters oh, yeah. to meet up with the stars and all that kind of stuff, uh, it, it must be one of the things I've noticed. I remember we did stuff with Gordon Ramsay and he had a million things to do, but he was very, very nice and he slotted in time for us. He, and he's like, has everyone got a picture? Do we need to? He was really great and all that right. kind of stuff. Um, but it must be horrible. You must have had oh, some horrible they're, experiences. They're the worst. They're the absolute worst. These... These uh, junkets, I, I don't do them anymore. There used to be a time uh, when you would get flown to New York or Los Angeles uh, to do um, a bunch of interviews. So, I mean, you might go to Los Angeles on Friday. You leave in the morning here. You get there in the afternoon. You go have a drink. You go see a movie. The next morning, you do five interviews for that movie. That afternoon, you see another movie. The next day, you do five or six more interviews for that, and then so on until you come home. And uh, they are terrible, and they're they're terrible for any number of reasons. Like I can count on one hand out of the dozens of them that I did, dozens and dozens and dozens of them that I did, that I got something that I thought was super interesting and really useful. Because essentially, what you have is uh, a movie star sitting in a room uh, and with a camera set up and the whole thing, in my case, sometimes it's for print and it's a different thing, right? But for, mm -hmm. you know, a little television studio in a hotel room, they sit there and over the course of the afternoon, 40 people from, oh, yeah. you know, Canada and the, and America are going to sit down and ask them essentially the same question. Right. You know? Right. And so I, I, I did a lot of them. There was, you know, a few that I remember, uh, not so much for the interviews themselves, but for the circumstances around them. I remember walking into a room, and I don't even remember the movie. Someone out there will remember what it was called. But it was Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. And they had them paired in the same room. So you walk mm -hmm. in and you've got, you know, at the time, then probably the two <laughs> biggest movie stars on earth in the same room. And it was just like a charisma meteorite <laughs> flying at you. It was very difficult to concentrate on that. And so, you know, that was that was a, a strange one. I remember flying to New York one time to interview John Malkovich. And he uh, he directed a film, and uh, so I walked in, and it's August, and it's blazingly hot out, both in Toronto and in New York. Right. And uh, But I always wear a suit and the whole thing when I do these things. Sure. And so I walk in, and, you know, Malkovich lives in France, and the room smells slightly of Galois cigarettes, and he's, like, honestly wearing a beret <laughs> and, a, and a very, and, a, and a, you know, like an ascot. And he's, like, he's dressed, but in kind of an, an eccentric way, but he looks fantastic. Right. So we sit down, and uh, we do the interview, and I don't think that he's digging it because I ask him a question, and then he'll pause for a very long time, you know, and in a in an interview situation, if this was for a print article or even a podcast, mm -hmm. you know, a 10 or 15 second pause between the end of my question and the beginning of his answer wouldn't be that big a deal. <laughs> but on television, it's an, they can drop a commercial in there, you know, in that amount of time, sure. right? Yeah, exactly. So it was, it, that, that was a little awkward. So I didn't think he was digging it. But then at the end of it, he was like, thank you very much. And as I'm getting up and walking away, he was like, stop for a second. And I'm like, what's what's going on? He's like, turn around. And I turned around and I'm facing him. And there's camera people and sound people and all sorts of, of others in the room. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, everyone, I want you to look at this man. I want you to see a man who came dressed for work. I want you to see a man who is professional in the way that he is dressed. Because all the camera people mm -hmm. and stuff, rightfully so, in 110 degree weather in New York are wearing shorts and t-shirts. Yep, and sure. he dressed them down while simultaneously 
like completely embarrassing me because I thought there's no way there's going to be anything on these tapes when I get them home. No, exactly. <laughs> these tapes are going to be blank <laughs> by the time I get them back to the TV station. <laughs> Here you go, Lord Fauntleroy. Yeah, yeah that's like, right. Yeah. Oh, that's yep. too funny. That's hilarious. I mean, you always, I mean, you have been, you and I did a panel on CTV News Channel uh, for a while and yeah. uh, you always came tremendously prepared and then you also came like, you, you looked, see, I was thinking, like, you look great when you would show up on TV and you always have kind of looked great on TV. You know how to do it. However, as a, as a, also a, a white dude with black rim glasses, I was like, damn it, mm. that dude, I can't, I've got no room now. That's it. I got to show up in a hoodie or that's all I've got. I, I tell you the suit, the whole suit and tie thing happened when I got my, my first real TV gig. I'd had a few, and I'd been on the radio for a while, but when I got a, a TV gig, I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in those days, though, um, there were great secondhand stores in and around uh, the city. And so I had big kind of like rockabilly hair, kind yeah. of the sort of the slick back thing that I have now, but it was a little larger, more like, you know, Brian Setzer or, yeah, yeah. you know, a Slim Jim Phantom or somebody, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought, well, you know, it's TV, so I should dress up a little bit. So I just went to like secondhand stores right. and bought like funky old suits and and crazy ties and stuff. And it just became the thing that I wore on television. And over the years, it's it's changed a little bit, I suppose. But the basic uh, the basics of it are the same. And it's one of the things that I learned in terms of like building a brand mm-hmm. was, you know, kind of you have to be consistent in yeah. how you look and what you do and all that sort of thing, or at least I found it worked for me. And so uh, the glasses uh, change, but they don't change that much. They're usually big, thick black glasses. Yeah. And, and I'm getting more and more like Swifty Lazar as the, <laughs> the years go on <laughs> with those giant <laughs> thick glasses. And I, I kind of love them. I'm a big fan of that. So my wife is convinced that you know soon I'm going to be just seen on the streets of Toronto with like a top hat and you know <laughs> big goggles and wearing a cape because it seems to be heading in that direction. Well, it works for you because it's a it's an imposing look. I remember sitting in the green room numerous times at the beginning, and you would walk in, I'd be like, "Oh God, I'm not up to the challenge of this year at all." Um, but when you've also like you were saying about you know the the branding, you're totally right because one of the things that stuck out to me. Uh, when I was sort of starting to build a little bit of a brand and was uh, David Byrne from the Talking Heads his quote of like yeah. if you want people to remember you wear the same thing every day yeah, and right. you know that's it's a it's a great quote because it's like that's exactly it I took it too far though I remember when I was first getting some success on social media and I knew I needed I had I put the glasses on as like a uh, like I, I wear glasses like I actually they're actual glasses mm-hmm. but I put them on as like a bit of a mask like a bit of a like a theater mask or something I could put them on right. and I could be that person I was separate I felt somehow protected Protected. But then I gained success by wearing hoodies and T-shirts. So I felt like, oh, I think about the David Byrne quote. I'd be like, I can't, I can't go anywhere now. Anything that's work-related <laughs> without wearing a, a hoodie and a T-shirt. So we'd go to these events in like California and and Florida. We'd be down in Orlando, and it'd be like forty-three degrees. And I'd be like, I want the people to recognize. I got to give the people what they want. <laughs> I got to give the people what they want. I get the hoodie on, the t-shirt, the glasses, and I'm dying. And I'm wearing like jeans and stuff. It's just, it was too much. You got to get your summer hoodie. I know. Well, I try, I did. I did try to find one. I found, I remember going to, I remember arriving at the World Media Festival in Banff, which is an, like, well, the events, whatever. But the, Banff is beautiful, obviously. And uh, it's lovely. It's mountainous, but it was still a little warm. And I remember thinking, oh God, I don't have a, a, a fancy hoodie. So I went out and spent a hundred bucks at Patagonia right. on a hoodie as a, as a fancy hoodie. And then when I went to California, I got a thin hoodie and I was like, I think I've got to just mm. drop this. I think, you know, do I really need all this stuff? It's, it's, hard though. I remember I was, it made me think of this when you mentioned Banff. I was in Banff uh, to interview Whoopi Goldberg on stage uh, at some festival out there. Right. So I, I fly in and it's beautiful and like everyone I'm wowed by the beauty of the nature and stuff and then I show up uh, for my event and I'm wearing like a, a, a gray suit and uh, <laughs> zebra skin socks uh-huh. and shoes that look like they're made out of tinfoil. They are, they're like silver 
<laughs> choose. But, but what I didn't really expect is that on stage, the light was reflecting off those <laughs> shoes in such a way that it was so distracting. And even I would, like my eye would catch the, the like a sparkle <laughs> of light off my shoe. And I'm like, damn it. It's like I was wearing prisms on my feet. And it wasn't exactly, uh, <laughs> it wasn't the right choice for that particular evening. And you stood up and Whoopi said, no, stop there. Turn around. Yeah. Take off <laughs> the right. goddamn shoes. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a man with ridiculous shoes. Yeah. Have you ever walked into an interview and thought to yourself or walked into a thing with a celeb and thought, nah, I don't need this. I just, I'm just going like, to, I'm happy to leave. We've had that happen once yeah. where we were asked to, to film with a celeb and walked into it and they just were not, I mean, I don't entirely blame them. They might've been misinformed. They might've had some bad handling. They might've been having a terrible day. But I remember saying to this celeb, I was like, I don't need to be here, man. Like, if you don't want to do this, just say, I'm happy to not do this. Have you ever had that kind of thing happen? Yeah. Yeah. A few times. I mean, I love, there's a Daniel Richler was interviewing Lou Reed once years ago. This is for the new music, like 40 years ago, maybe 35 years ago. And they were in a park somewhere and they were doing the thing. And Lou just wasn't giving him anything. And Daniel just stood up, took his microphone off and went, listen, I don't want to be here either. Took the mic and just walked out of frame, leaving Lou Reed sitting there like an asshole. Uh, and it was kind of fantastic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was. It, it's the kind of thing that I wanted to do uh, a lot of times. Right. I, uh, I've cut a lot of interviews short. Um, because I'm just not getting anything that I'm finding terribly interesting. Right. I have learned over the years how to ask questions so that you don't get yes or no answers. You know, it's just all about how you phrase things. Questions should be short, punchy, and instead of saying, do you like playing guitar? It should be, what do you like about playing guitar? That kind of thing, right? right. So if you say, do you like, they say, yes, I do. <laughs> if you say, what is it that you like? It forces them to come up with an answer. And I'm also big into silence in interviews. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to sit there and stare at somebody. And if they give me an answer that isn't particularly satisfying, I will often not follow up and just sit there as though I'm expecting them to say something else. And nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, they will. And you start to get better stuff. That's a power move. Well, you know, you learn doing a bunch of these like Hollywood interviews, you learn power moves. And uh, this is one that I've never done, but it it was done to me and I couldn't believe it. So (laughs) for the movie Pearl Harbor, whenever that was a long time ago, I was in Hawaii on the deck of a ship called the USS John Stennis. And it was... Uh, different from the USS John Stamos. That's a very different ship, the John Stamos. Yeah, that's right, John, yes, yeah. yeah, yes. And it was like an apartment building turned on its side. 3,000 people Amazing. lived on it. It was just an enormous thing. And we were doing all our interviews uh, on that deck. And so two things that were kind of interesting happened during that. One was that Ben Affleck did not look at me at all during his interview. And I thought, <laughs> oh, man... Like, what is going on here? And and then, it, as it turns out, uh, when you get the footage back, he looks amazing. The camera placement was oh. such that he was playing to the camera. So he cheated it just enough so that it looked like he was looking at me if you saw the two shot. And that but in real life, he in wasn't. In real life, he was not even close to looking at me, but he understood where the camera was, and that's why he's a movie star. Wow. So there's that, which is kind of a, a power move. But the, the biggest power move there was Jerry Bruckheimer, who produced the movie. I walk into the little area that he's in and he's sitting on a chair that's a little higher than the one that the interviewer is sitting in. So that's kind of a power move. (laughs) Uh, As soon as I sit down, he takes a a camera out and takes a Polaroid picture of me. and says, name. And I said, Richard Krause. And he writes it down and puts it on a pile of Polaroids next to him. So now he's got evidence that I was in the room. It's like a serial killer? And then... uh, (laughs) I said, well, it's nice to meet you. And I put my hand out to shake his hand and he sat back and raised his hand ever so slightly so that I had to get up out of my chair and go over to him (laughs) and shake his hand. I just, I mean, I mean, I get it. I mean, it'd be, I, I can't quite understand if you're sitting doing those interviews like 40 times yeah. in a row and how horrible yeah. that would be and how it would, because if, if it's your first time doing it, maybe you're yeah. excited and you can get through 40. If it's your you know 12th time doing 40 interviews in a row, you'd be like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Yeah. And, and, and why bother? Yeah, and it just seems like a lot of games. Well, like I'm, I'm going to intimidate this, you know, film critic yeah. from Canada. Yeah, what is because like, I'm the most powerful man in Hollywood. Yeah, 
asks, to what end? Like, to what end is he doing mm-hmm. that? It doesn't make any sense. Nope. So have you ever walked into an interview where you're like, you are starstruck? Where you're like, oh, God. Because, I mean, I don't really get star tr- starstruck that often. Until re- nope. actually, I was saying actually recently, I was talking to uh, to weirdly to well that's, that makes it sound insulting, um, <laughs> but with Brent Button, Nancy Robertson, and I was like, I was nervous they were going to be horrible, but they were lovely. They were really really nice. Oh, they're so not horrible. Yeah. Neither of them. Um, I I don't really get starstruck because it's sort of part of the job not to you know. But it was it, it's interesting. So Ed Asner died recently, mm-hmm. and uh, with the day that he died, I put up on my uh, Facebook account and on Twitter, this picture that was taken at the Empire State Building years ago when Elf was opening. Yeah. And I snuck into the party. It was a big premiere party and I was in, I was working in New York anyway and I went down and I snuck into the 80th floor of the, uh, of the Empire State Building and there's booze and food and anything you could possibly want there. There's not that many people there. There's only about 50 or 60 people there, including the entire cast of Elf. So you get to hang out with Will Ferrell a little bit. Yeah. And the picture that I posted, though, is John Favreau, me, Bob Newhart, yes. and Ed Asner. And somebody on that thread wrote, it's good to see someone get starstruck. Yeah. Well, it was an amazing picture. You know, because I think I had that look on my face. You know, as Bob Newhart's literally, yeah, sort of hugging me a little yeah. bit. So there's that. And uh, I was interviewing, uh, it's happened a couple of times, but it's usually when I don't kind of expect it. Like uh, Robert Duvall is uh, hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. He's an older guy, harder, hard of hearing. And so when you interview him, you have to sit fairly close to him. Right. And I was sitting fairly close to him. And I would say, uh, you know, what did you like about making the movie? And he would start to speak. And all I could hear was, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, or, or Tom Hagen from The Godfather or, you know, whatever it was. That's all I could hear. I couldn't even hear the answers. I would just see his lip move in that voice. And Dustin Hoffman uh, asked me to fix his watch one time. Oh. Couldn't get his watch going, and he gave me his watch, and I was like, "Man, I'm fixing Dustin Hoffman's watch. This <laughs> That's pretty like, cool." It just seemed like such an. I mean, it was just such a, a nothing, but it's Dustin Hoffman. I was sitting at a table with Dustin Hoffman, and and yeah, you know. There's been a few of them. Yeah, I mean, you get those. Uh, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. First of all, uh, that you still get starstruck, but it's the uh, whatever National Enquirer, whoever it is, it is like stars. They're just like us. Yeah. Um, because you do kind of forget when you talk to these people. You're like, oh wait, they're just regular folk. Well, they. So, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. So, <laughs> uh, like, I'll agree with you to a point on that. Yeah. But uh, some of these lives. Uh, that they're leading are so extraordinary that they aren't just like, I mean, it's right. sure, you know, they're like double frappuccinos from Starbucks, just like us. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you've ever spent any time in the presence of Brad Pitt, uh-huh. you realize that his life just isn't like yours. Right. Like it isn't. And I, you know, so I, I wrote a story a little while ago about hosting a, a press conference with Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And so it's me, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, uh, and um, uh, maybe a couple of other people. And as we go on stage, we're all backstage, and everything is very chilled out backstage. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we we step onto the stage, the press photographers have usually a, a two- or three-minute photo call where they can just take as many pictures as humanly possible. And yeah. that's what you see when you see on television a big scrum of photographers, and they're all yelling, like, Brad, Brad, over here, smile, all that kind right, of thing, right? right? But I was unprepared for the onslaught of it. So we walk onto the stage, and hundreds of flashbulbs just start going on. Everyone's yelling. And and I felt kind of assaulted by the whole thing. Yeah. I also realized they don't want a picture of Brad Pitt <laughs> and me. So I... Step, <laughs> I, I, I stepped out of the way and let all that happen. And uh, and then, you know, they've got three minutes to do it, and it's intense. They take you know, probably thousands of pictures in those three minutes, and then it's done. Then they're ushered out, and then we do an hour-long press conference. Mm-hmm. So after that, I sat down to do a, a one-on-one interview for television with Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, that was wild, wasn't it? And he said, uh, uh, what do you mean? And I said, the photographers and the, 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 the flashes and the yelling. And he's like, oh, yeah, 
I, I, yeah, yeah, that was wild. Absolutely <laughs> unconvincingly. Right. Like that to him is just such a normal part of his life right. that he didn't even, it didn't, it, it was just a blip for him. He didn't, it, it traumatized me for weeks afterwards. That was just something that he didn't even take into account. He didn't even notice it. Barely. And so, you know, there's that. Uh, I hosted an event with Madonna at one point. Right. Which was kind of surreal. Like, when was this? When was that? It, it was when her movie W came out. So, I mean, 10 years ago. I'm terrible with dates. I have yeah. no idea. It could have been yesterday or it could have been 15 years ago. <laughs> I'm just trying to determine which Madonna I'm thinking of in this story. You know what I mean? Because there's been different Madonnas. Well, uh, she was you know, very, very popular singer. <laughs> and sometimes actor. <laughs> and, and But, you know, it was interesting, too. I learned in that particular instance, about learning what uh, the the gossip press uh, will run with. Right. So I spent the better part of an afternoon uh, in and around her sphere that day. Yeah. And um, so two stories about this, really. So Madonna uh, comes in. She's all business. She just wants to know, like, you know, where are we going to be sitting? What's happening? You know, the whole right. thing, all the stuff that normally you have a little army of publicists that take care of her, but she wants to deal with it all. Okay. So, great. Fine. Sure. And so we do all that, uh, and um, we get her up there. We do the press conference, very successful. She leaves with her people, and she's gone. The next day, I read the newspaper accounts of what uh, happened, and it was like, Madonna insisted that no one backstage look her in the eye. Yes. And I'm like, well, that's just not true. I was like, it was almost like her laser focus. Yeah. Her laser eyes almost, you know, like cut me in half. She was staring at me so hard. Like some Malkovich had already said, look at this guy. Yeah. He's ready to go. <laughs> well, look at this guy, right? And so uh, there was that. So you learn to take all that with a grain of salt. Yeah. I also hosted uh, a press conference with Johnny Depp and he was late. And so um, we're all like, oh, what's Johnny Depp doing? Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, you know, you know what you've read about Johnny Depp and he's late for everything. He's drinking wine somewhere. Turns out that uh, on his way into the building, there were all these like kids out front uh, dressed as Captain Jack Sparrow. And he stopped and took pictures with every single one of them. And that's why he was late. That's amazing. And, you know, uh, so y- you, in celebrity culture and what you read on, you know, online, that sort of thing, just take it with a grain of salt, I would say. Well, that's what I mean is the, you know, when you're saying the celebrities are just like us, I think one of the things that, for me anyway, as like as a, as a dad for our boys, Owen and Gregor, I would, we would go and we would meet people and I'm happy when they get to meet people who are successful and doing good things and amazing things just to kind of give that idea of like, well, they may be living an entirely day. Like Gordon Ramsay's not living that. He didn't have the same day I did yeah. when we met. However, yeah, yeah. we're in the same room. We're breathing the same air and he's wearing pants just like mm-hmm. us. You know what I mean? So it's, it seems like there's a, there's a connection there and it's, that's pretty powerful. It, it is. I mean, I get that. I, you know, I remember again, um, hosting a thing with Lady Gaga and, you know, what struck me about her was just how incredibly nice and normal she was backstage. Uh, it's like, call me Stephanie, mm-hmm. you know, on stage, it's Lady Gaga, off stage, call me Stephanie, that kind of thing. It's very nice. And she obviously had a bond with the other people that were in the room. It was for A Star Is Born. So, right. All stuff, all, all very cool. When I brought her out on stage, though, the looks on the faces of the people in the audience is, I'm sure, what the looks on the faces of people everywhere she goes are. I mean, just these people were agog yeah. that Lady Gaga was there. And that's not normal. Yeah. You know, when you, everywhere you go, someone's like, you know, staring yeah. at you. Or, or one, one person burst into tears when she walked out on stage. And, you know, and that's not normal. I think it'd be really hard to deal with. You know, it'd be very hard to live with and hard to, to adjust. And I remember reading, uh, not reading, actually being told by uh, a person I know, Stephen Duffy, who produced Robbie Williams' album. And when he started oh, yeah. working with Robbie Williams, Stephen had this little tiny studio in Air Studios in London. And uh, he had he had met Robbie Williams before. And Robbie Williams is this huge pop singer guy who was in Take That. And it, it, like everywhere in the everywhere, world except here. It, That's the crazy thing. Yeah, yeah. like massively popular. Yeah. Sells out Nebworth for three nights in a row, like 300,000 people a night type of thing. Yeah. Crazy huge. And He's uh, Jimmy Page's neighbor. That's right. And That's Jimmy right. Page is mad at him because he's trying to do some renos on the house yeah, and it's noisy. he wants to build a pool or something <laughs> in his basement. It's, I mean, weird. Yeah. It's really bizarre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I remember Stephen saying to me that you've got this guy who uh, commands 300,000 people at Nebworth and then you're in a room with him and it's just you and him 
And he said, I don't know how you change that energy. Like, I don't know how you, you have 300,000 people worshiping you and then you've got one person just trying to talk to you, but if you want lunch or not, you know, like, it's just really weird. Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, again, but there's always those moments too that when you say, well, they're just like us. So (laughs) I don't uh, sound like that. (laughs) A a, a few years, a few years ago, uh, to me, you do. So a few years ago. A few years ago, uh, we were in London and we hired someone to take us around and show us some, I wanted to do like a rock and roll tour of London. So, and we went to Jimmy Page's house and he lives in, in essentially what is kind of looks like a castle. Alistair Crowley used to live right. there, the, the black magic, uh, proponent of black magic. Yeah. And, uh, and it's got stained glass windows that apparently uh, when the sun hits it at different times of day, makes different designs, like demonic designs <laughs> on the walls and stuff. It's like, it's just, it's a crazy thing. And so, you know, the guy was telling us about it, Robbie. And, and the problem with Robbie Williams is he's trying to build a pool yeah. next door. And uh, Jimmy Page is afraid that his 200-year-old castle will be unduly affected by the construction. Right. So we're talking to the guy. And I said, do you ever see Page coming and going? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The last time I did one of these, he was out taking the recycling out. <laughs> which I just thought, you know. It's a bit of a letdown almost. Like, oh. Yeah. Oh. I love that yeah. so much. It's, I remember meeting, actually, because this, this guy, Stephen Duffy, was a, he's the guy, one of the founders of Duran Duran. And, he, and we ended up, we become kind of friends, which is lovely and really great. But the first time I went to meet him, we were at his house. And maybe this is going to lead into a question for you. I was at his house and I was like, oh, could I use your washroom? And he said, absolutely. And I went to the washroom, which is just like a small little, you know, uh, sink and toilet type of thing in the in the main floor. Yep. And so I go in there. I believe a half bath. Well, half bath. That's the word. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go in there and uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing my business, which is fine. Nothing, I wasn't committing to a lot in there, but I was doing my business. <laughs> and then there was a knock on the door. And I open, I go, oh, and I open the door and it's Steven and he's holding a, a roll of toilet paper and he goes, there's none in there. I was like, oh, thank you. And I, there was a little part of my teenage <laughs> self that died. It was like, oh no. Oh, that's terrible. That's horrible. Have you ever been in those types of situations? Uh, it doesn't have to be bathroom related. Yeah. Nothing really like that so much. I mean, you know, you see things uh, sometimes that yeah. is like kind of you know <laughs> unexpected. Um, nothing, it, nothing comes to mind. But there are, I mean, there are people that you meet sometimes who are a letdown, right? And I mean, this is sort of how we started this. And I mean, that's not a letdown. I no, would, that actually, was a letdown. I kind of like the toilet paper story. Well, I mean, it's a great story, and it's I mean, it's fun that it happened. But at the same time, it was like he'd gone from this ethereal sort of supreme being yeah. to just a dude who didn't put toilet paper in the bathroom, and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Jimmy Page taking yeah, exactly, out the recycling. Exactly. Yeah. I haven't been really disappointed by meeting a lot of celebrities. Most of the celebrities I've met have been like, oh, you're actually quite nice. You're, you're friendly. And you're, I mean, I get that you're busy or whatever, and it's I, I kind of get it. Um, have you met people that you thought, oh, no, this is a total disappointment? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have. I, you know, most people, people always ask me this, right? They ask you different questions like, uh, you know, my wife uh, will ask me, not to wash my hand after I've met and shook like Keanu Reeves' hand or something like that. She goes, I want to smell it. That's distressing. (laughs) That's distressing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so things like that. Uh, But, you know, the difference is that when I am meeting them, you know, pretty much everyone's on their best behavior, right? There's cameras everywhere. There's tell, you know, it's so it's a a different kind of vibe. I I would say that, that generally speaking, you know, okay. Here's what I don't like. This is this is a disappointment. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names, but it does happen. Damn it! Where um, you walk into the junket situation that we talked about earlier. Yeah, cameras everywhere, and the actors are there, and uh, they do not acknowledge that there's another human in the room until they go three, two, one, action, and then they're like, "Oh, so nice to meet you." It's like I've been in here for five minutes. Right. Right, <laughs> and you have yeah. not acknowledged me, and 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 I have had that happen. And what I, I and I do understand that that is in some way a, a self defense right. mechanism, yeah. so that you don't have to make small talk forty times a day with people and talk about the weather forty times a day with forty different people. I get that, yeah. but it doesn't make you feel great, and and it doesn't for me start the interview in an interesting way. You know, I like uh, people like uh, Hugh Jackman, who every time I've interviewed him is always the consummate kind of gentleman. Oh, that's nice who, to hear. Uh, if you're in a hotel room, he walks you to the door and oh, thanks wow. you very much for your time. And yeah, like he's just a, you know, he's a good dude and he'll, he'll actually have, engage, he'll actually have a conversation with you uh, rather than just feed you sound bites. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who is, you know, I've always thought was fun to interview until I get the tapes home. And then I realize, <laughs> or the discs these days, you get the discs home and you realize, 
he didn't really answer any of the questions that I asked him. <laughs> like, uh, I would say, uh, you know, what was it like working with Martin Scorsese? And he'd say, well, working on this film was, and then he just gives me a prepackaged right. answer, yeah. regardless of what the question was. So, it, you know, there there are people that will really engage with you. And then there, there are others for whom that this is just strictly a commercial proposition. Right. You know, where they're there to say what they're supposed to say uh, and and sell their movie and do it. And, and, you know, that's just part of the game too. But not my favorite part, but that is part of the game. Is there any, you know, truth to the idea that um you know there's no small parts just small actors that idea of like sometimes you'll you'll meet someone who's got a modicum of success or, or a little bit of celebrity and they're worse than the people who are at the top of the game absolutely yeah oh 100 uh, percent. and you know i cannot tell you how many times during uh the toronto film festival where years ago we used to get a suite so all the the television stations would get a suite mm -hmm. at uh, one of the hotels we would all it would there would be a like a, a media hotel and um it would just be like you know boom 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 all the way down the hall and so actors would just go door to door to door right. and you know we'd stay in the room and the actors would come to us and i cannot tell you the amount of time that uh, you know, stars, uh, like stars in quotation marks, um, <laughs> who I had never heard of would come in with a giant entourage oh. and, you know, have a walk around and say, oh, we're going to have to change the lighting completely <laughs> if we're going to do this. So we're going to have to. And then, you know, the next time, it, you know, you, hit, you get a knock at the door and it's Michael Caine by himself right. and he wants to, come, yeah. you know, he's, it's, I think I'm early. Is it okay if I come in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know, man. Sure. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, he, uh, one time I was scheduled to interview Michael Michael Caine, and uh, I was running around. It was during the Toronto Film Festival, and I was probably overscheduled, and I was running late. It was blazingly hot. I'm wearing a suit, and, you know, I, I run into our suite, and I'm five minutes late, which with a lot of these actors, you know, their days are scheduled off in blocks of five yeah. to seven yeah. minutes, right? So it's, it's it, five minutes is enough. And I thought, well, for sure, I've lost this interview. He won't be there. Right. And I walk in and I'm sweating and I'm just, and Michael Caine is sitting there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Mr. Caine, I'm so sorry. And, and he was like, you look like you need to sit down. <laughs> Why don't you pull yourself together? And he just read the newspaper, talked to my camera guy, Sherman, for ages oh, while I man. pulled my act together and then gave me a great interview. And, you know, so that stuff absolutely happens. Yeah. Janet Lee came to our suite one time by herself. Amazing. You know, whereas, you know, someone that you've never heard of brings 55 people and they all like uh, have demands. There's a, Those are usually the interviews where there's a bunch of demands. Don't ask about this. Don't ask about that. Right. It's like, I don't care who they're dating. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to. I'm not going to ask that anyway. <laughs> yeah. But now I'm curious. <laughs> Exactly. Why? Why don't you want me to know? <laughs> yeah. I think that there's that that notion of, uh, it's almost like they're they're terrified that this is their only moment of celebrity. They've arrived and this might be it at the same time. And they just have to sort of... Yeah, I mean, there are some people that need it. You know, like Lady Gaga had security with yeah, her. Yeah, that makes and sense. I, I, I saw why. Yeah. She, though, seemed unaffected by it, which was so cool. You know, like they were definitely there. Yeah. And during this press conference, you know, we're on a, on a stage, but we're not, you know, it's not all that high. Yeah. Like we're three or four feet above the where the audience is and uh some guy in the audience had a t-shirt that he wanted to give to lady okay. gaga and he started to walk towards the <gasps> stage and i saw her bodyguards just like swoop in i said you know what i'll take that yeah. <laughs> give that to me i think I, I i prevented that guy from getting his arm torn <laughs> yeah, off exactly. with it still grasping onto the t-shirt because there was no way that they were going to let him near the stage you know because she was fairly exposed to that yeah point. but you know so some people uh have it but but so often uh, it's people that, uh, you know, you wonder why do you have 25 people with you? Right, uh, right. One of the things I really like about what you've been doing recently is that you've kind of, like, a, unlike a lot of other people who have been in, I'll say, broadcast television, traditional media, whatever, you've, like, you're really kind of pushing into social and digital and really kind of making it rough for the people like me who have to, you know, who don't know the stories you do. Oh, but uh, I'm a threat. <laughs> I'm a threat. <laughs> but I think that... Um, you know, what's cool is that you, you've been sharing some of this stuff and you did this uh, video a while ago telling a story about uh, being at an SNL after party. And it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, I, I, I shared it with the, with our boys and I was like, you guys have to, you, this is a story worth listening to. But I love those moments. Like where you, like you said, like you, well, the story I'll let you tell, but that idea of like, you find yourself fixing Dustin Hoffman's watch and you're like, well, this is just weird. Yeah. Like there must be days you just go, that's weird. Oh, yeah. Some days the job is super weird. 
You know, I mean, a little less so during the pandemic because we're doing everything sure. virtually yeah. now. But uh, for years, like once a week, something like super weird would happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just are like, like, that is super weird. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's watch or whatever it might be. But uh, the SNL party was just, a, you know, a, an unusual and uh, night. And when I look back on, on some of those things uh, that have happened, I really try and think, um, there has to be a lesson to be learned here somewhere. And that was kind of the point of that video. Yeah. So I was at Saturday Night Live. Paul McCartney was the musical guest. Uh, a friend of mine's, uh, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine's brother was on the show at the time. So we were seated right in the front and, you know, did the uh, the whole thing and invited to the after party. Amazing. And the legendary after parties. And so I was at the after party sitting at the, at the, the cast area Um and, you know, it's Adam Sandler and uh, uh, Chris Farley was drinking rum and Cokes like they were going to be declared illegal the next day. And and Phil Hartman uh, told me that he quit smoking and then smoked all my cigarettes. And, you know, it was just one of those kind yeah. of like you couldn't believe everywhere you looked. I, I looked at the back table and there's like a little VIP area at the back where Lauren Michaels sits. Uh, and and it was like Lauren Michaels, Paul Simon, Sting, Paul McCartney all at the same table having to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Linda was there. Linda, this is 1992 or yeah. three, and and so there's a lot happening there. And and so I talked to Jack Handy for a long time, and he wrote Deep yeah, Thoughts with Jack right. Handy, and he was a super fun guy. And so he leaves, uh, and at one point, and by this point, honestly, it's 4:30 or God. 5 o'clock in the morning. It's it's late, yeah. and we're in the East Village somewhere at some nightclub, and it, we and we've got the whole place. Right, it's, it's the entirety of it is ours, and everything is free. Amazing. So like if you want something, you just point at it, and someone brings <laughs> it to you. And so Jack Candy leaves, and he comes back and says, "I have someone you have to meet." And so he brings me over to like the dance floor, which by this point nobody much is using. Uh, and Allen Ginsberg is there, the legendary beat poet who wrote uh, Howl, uh, who was a friend of Jack yes, Kerouac, yeah. you know, of course. And, and all that stuff, right? And my mind, my head just yeah. got, got Paul McCartney is over there. Allen Ginsberg is here. You know, Alec Baldwin's having a drink at the bar. It is ridiculous here. Yes. So I said to Allen Ginsberg, you know, I uh, saw you speak a long time ago and you uh, did a poem about not smoking. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I remember that one. It's called Don't Smoke. I've written some new stanza for it. Would you like to hear God. it? And then he just, <laughs> like, at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, in a, and back in those days, a smoky, loud bar yeah. stood and recited poetry to me and a, a small handful of other people who had sort of gathered around him. And the the lesson that I learned about that was, you know, uh, be confident yeah. in your art. Like he knew that what he was about to do was going to be good. Yeah. And he, but where he believed it was going to be yeah. good, and he thought, "Well, I've got the attention of these five or six people right here. I'm going to do it. Yeah. This is I'm going to express myself." Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for me, it's the difference, uh, you know, between you know being on television and having hundreds of thousands of people watch, or online. I mean, I've got videos that get twenty thousand. Yeah. I've got videos that get a uh, hundred. Uh, people yeah, looking yeah. at them, but you know, I uh, what I learned there is uh, if I like it, put it yeah. out, and people will either believe that it's good or not, and find it or not. And uh, it's a, I think it's a healthy attitude. Absolutely, I think you have to have that sort of confidence to sort of get out there. And I think you have to. There's like a lesson there to be kind of just being open to these opportunities. When we find ourselves, you know, certainly nothing as impressive as that story, but find ourselves in these situations where you're like, oh, this is weird. Like we you know we stayed at the Property Brothers house in Las Vegas just by us, yeah. like no, just yeah, us yeah. and the person who's taking care of the house. It's like you wake up in the morning thinking. This is odd. This is just odd. But you kind of make yourself available yeah. to those experiences, and they seem to kind of happen every now and then, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all out there. People, you know, I, I interviewed an actor named Mark O'Brien a little while ago. He's on a, a show called City on the Hill uh, right now. He's Canadian. He's from Newfoundland originally. And I, I said, you know, how did you uh, become, what made you want to become an actor? Did you know any actors? And he said, nah, not really. But he said, I used to watch television and and, and I would think, like, if that guy can do it, yeah. why can't I? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's 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 it exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions just to, as we wind up here. Okay. Uh, one of them is um, a really great tip. So if you've got any kind of tip, cooking, drinking, dressing, uh, hair gel, whatever you want, just a really great tip. 
if you are going to use a lime squeezer uh, or like a citrus squeezer to make your cocktails, uh-huh. when you cut the lime in half and put it in the the, the squeezer, mm-hmm. right? Those little hand yep. squeezers that you use, cut the bottom off so that it is uh, flat and exposes some of the flesh of the lime or the lemon and squeeze it. You'll get twice as much <gasps> juice out of it and you'll also by using that little device in there you know 10 bucks at kitchen stuff plus probably um it also gives you the oils from the lime or lemon in the juice and it tastes richer and better when you're making cocktails that's a good tip i appreciate that tip that was good i like that <laughs> you think the juice would just come out all over the top though you think you would just squeeze it down it would no it, it, it for some reason it doesn't all right yeah i won't quite yeah. i'll try it i won't question i'll just try it Another question is, uh, I'm fascinated, uh, you know, you often get people asking, uh, if you go back to your childhood self, what would you tell yourself to do differently or what advice would you give? I'm not, in, I don't, I'm not interested in that because it's, it's too vast of a, of a time. What I'm interested in is if yeah. you can go back a year, just one year, and it doesn't have to be pandemic related. It could be anything, but just something from, if you go back to yourself a year ago and save yourself some hassle or give yourself some advice, or whatever, so stuff like that, that kind of thing. I, well, I would say, uh, don't cut your own hair, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or or unless you don't mind sort of an avant-garde, you know, unless you treat it as an avant-garde art project, probably don't cut your own hair. Uh, I, I, I learned that along the way, um, and also like a, a year ago. I mean, I think that uh, what I would say, uh, it, which is a, a bit more general, but um, it is to learn to be really adaptable and to be nimble. Mm-hmm. I think that the people that are going to uh, do well during the pandemic are people that are able to um, to pivot, and I hate the word pivot, but it's, you know, <laughs> people are using it, but that are able to, to adapt constantly to this because, you know, we are living in my business, in the media business, whether it's traditional media or social media, things are changing yes. constantly. Yeah. It's so rapidly. And the pandemic seems to have sped that yeah. up a little bit in a lot of ways. And so you have to be nimble. You have to be able to uh, adapt and change and do it you know, without fear. Right. Because if you're overthinking things, you're going to end up wasting a whole lot of time. And, uh, you know, as I get older and as I think about things a little bit more, I realize like, you know, time and your health are the only two things really that matter. The rest of the stuff is, is salad dressing. I don't know. It's, it's, it's uh, icing. I don't know. But, but everything else is just something that is an additive right. to the, to the, to the main thing, which yeah. is, I, know, I like the salad you, dressing. You, you can't get any more time. Yeah. Eh, it's yeah. not bad. Know what the yeah. salad dressing is in your salad of life. That's what you basically were saying. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Be the thousand island yeah. dressing That's right. in your life. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Super fun. Thanks for having me. The Really Great Podcast is fueled by our well-caffeinated friends at Club Coffee. Don't get too excited because there's no actual club to join. It's just a weird name. I don't know why they chose that name, but they did, and they're called Club Coffee. The good news is they make delicious compostable coffee pods. You can find it at retailers across Canada, like Loblaws, Amazon, and Costco. If you're not into coffee, sorry. Oh, and they're Canadian too, eh? I love Richard's stories. He's such a great guy, like a cool guy, and his stories are cool, and they're full of cool people doing cool things and he just is such a good storyteller too it was really fun to be able to kind of drag out those stories and really get his name dropping going in this conversation i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did because i really enjoyed it anyway thanks so much for listening be kind to each other and i hope you join us for the next episode